Welcome to the Queen of the Sciences podcast, conversations between a theologian and her dad. I'm your host, Sarah Henlicky wilson And I am Paul R. Henlicky. Today on the show, we are following up our last episode on critical social theory with the empiricist strike back. So what we're going to do here is uncover and discuss the ways in which especially scientifically minded heirs of the Anglo-American empiricist tradition have been pushing back against the inroads that critical social theory is making. And we're going to start this by looking at um, the basic claims and sources of this intellectual tradition. Then we're going to move into the massive holes in it, which critical social theory can drive a truck through and why it is susceptible to those attacks. And finally, at the end, we are going to look at the ways in which empiricism and the um, political companion of classical liberalism to which it gave birth could be greatly helped by, you guessed it, Christian theology. Sarah, that sounds like a great program. Let's hope we can do it. All right. Yeah. And in an hour. <laughs> so, so dad, um, the way this in this sequence of episodes we're doing came about is that I've um, been listening to and reading a number of, I would say, um, secular scientific critics of critical social theory. And I found them to be tremendously insightful and helpful, except for their massive blind spot around their own intellectual history. And what I hear again and again is this appeal to the enlightenment. Like, the problem with critical theory is that it is abandoning the enlightenment. But as you are going to detail for us now, the enlightenment gave birth to many children. And in fact, critical social theory itself is a product, several generations on, of the Enlightenment. So to get us going, why don't you disentangle for us several of the facets of the Enlightenment and how they um, gave rise to the streams that are in conflict today? Well, you know, that's that's really good. We have to do a genealogy here of the so-called the Enlightenment. And I, I'm going to do that quickly by citing a few uh, passages from the early Spinoza. And he spoke about the situation of his time in the 17th century, in which everyone tries to advance arguments that depend merely on likelihood and probability. And in this way, they thrust before the public a great medley of great books in which you may look in vain for solidity and certainty, disputes and strife abound and uh, and are fought somehow with trivial arguments of no real weight, soon refuted by another, demolished and shattered with the same worthless weapons. So where the mind, eager for unshakable truth, had thought to find for its labor a placid stretch of water that it could navigate with safety and success, thereafter attaining the haven of knowledge for which it is, for which it is the end, it finds itself tossed on stormy seas of opinion, beset on all sides with tempests of dispute, hurled about and carried on waves of uncertainty, endlessly with no hope of ever emerging therefrom. Such is the wretched state of philosophy. <laughs> Spinoza is talking about the Europe in the throes of the wars of religion in which uh, intractable conflict, the self-destruction of European Christianity in the wars of religion between Protestants and Catholics caused a massive legitimacy crisis. And moreover, the tradition of philosophy was dogmatic and authoritarian, and it seemingly simply traded one set of opinions for another. And in this darkness, Spinoza said, we must cast aside all of these prejudices and seek to found knowledge on secure foundations. And that's what he discovered in the earliest modern philosopher, Rene Descartes. And he puts it, he puts it this way. And the, the point here is what all the Enlightenments have in common is this quest for the foundations of knowledge for the timeless, spaceless foundation of knowledge that would secure all scientific study and discovery. 
So Spinoza writes, I have thought it helpful to give a concise account as to why Descartes doubted everything, the way in which he laid the solid foundation of the sciences, and finally the means by which he freed himself from all doubts. First, to put aside all prejudice. Second, to discover the foundations on which everything should be built. Third, to uncover the causes of error, and four, to understand everything clearly and distinctly. Modest goals. Modest goals. Yes, Spinoza's purpose then is to transcend the chaos, the fog, and the friction of philosophical battle, and to find the timeless, eternally true foundations of all knowledge. And that's what the Enlightenment is in all of its permutations. Well, I think that should be very striking, especially to our American listeners, because we seem to have gotten to a point culturally and socially in which the conflict is not simply over like interpretations or the best actions, but actually the facts, the knowledge itself. There's no longer any common, it seems in many cases, any common assumptions about what the facts are from which you could then move into discussions about interpretation or action. Yeah, there's a very smart book by a philosopher named Hazana Sharp. It's called Spinoza and the Politics of Renaturalization. And it contains a very uh, profound critique of identity politics along these lines, uh, arguing against even strategic essentialism and critical social theory, that it's, it's a tactic that's doomed to bite back, as I argued in the last episode, and that the foundations of knowledge have to be found with Spinoza in the nature of things. Right, uh, right. So, yes, I think that we're going to hear voices like that, and we're going to hear voices like that today criticizing critical social theory. But let me just say then, there are two main streams of the Enlightenment of the 17th century. On the continent, stemming from Descartes, but proceeding through Leibniz, Kant, and Hegel and onwards, as we discussed in the last episode, there is a stream of, of foundationalism that we call rationalism because it's founded upon an indubitable intuition. Cogito ergo sum. I think, therefore I am. I cannot doubt the fact that I doubt. I, I think more positively, and therefore I exist. This is the indubitable foundation of knowledge in a rational insight of, into the thinking self. And from that, all the idealism of the continental tradition flows. Over in England, John Locke read this, and he was impressed very much by the project of founding knowledge on a certain and secure basis that would never, ever uh, be shaken by mere opinion and prejudice and bigotry again. So it, it, Locke was part of the Enlightenment project of founding knowledge, but he found the idea of an intellectual intuition to conquer all doubt worthless. We don't need to go into the reasons why he thought it was worthless. Uh, so much as to simply say he sought a different way of founding knowledge. And for Locke, that foundation was sense experience. When my five senses engage with external reality, uh, when my foot kicks the stone and it hurts, I know with certainty that there is something out there. And then now I have to adopt critical scientific methods to ascertain exactly what that is. So you could say empiricist foundationalism does not found knowledge on an intellectual intuition, but on a sense experience. And the certainty of the sense experience then gives way critically, uh, not to naive sense experience, but to 
processed sense experience in the scientific method. Right. So then would you say that the continental version needs to grasp the whole? It's kind of like Plato's theoria that you, you see the whole thing and you only know anything if you know everything, whereas the Anglo-American empiricist tradition is much more comfortable with an a, accumulating knowledge, that you take it step by step, you build on it. It doesn't matter if you don't see the whole. Is that a, a good basic distinction between the two? Yeah, I think you could say it's a contrast between deductive and inductive approaches. Mm, right, right. Okay, you know, I in, in graduate school, I would say I, I, I um, was exposed to a, a later phase of this empiricism that I, I still find quite helpful, which uh, was termed evolutionary epistemology, which is is building on, obviously, at the time of Locke, they didn't know about the, the theory of evolution. But the idea that actually, like you said, we have five senses. And the, one of the reasons we have five different senses is because if your experience is confirmed by that many different ways of accessing the object outside of you, um, chances are it's at least accurate enough to keep you alive. <laughs> and so it's thinking in terms of our access to knowledge about the world in terms of actual our success, our survival, the, the ecosystem survival, because it's actually engaging with something real enough to keep going. And so I, I think it's, it seems to be a, a later phase in this philosophical approach to how we can know things, bringing the theory of evolution in. Yeah, that that's good. It sounds to me, Sarah, like that almost blends over to the kind of pragmatism that I embrace but I think that's basically right, that pragmatism, too, is a, um, a develops on American soil as a response to the theory of evolution and, uh, and to this way of viewing uh, knowledge as it rooted in the biological needs of the species to survive in, in nature. So I think the important thing to clarify here, though, is that empiricism or, you know, the scientific method, however you want to call it, in order to be faithful to itself, can claim accumulating knowledge, but it actually does not internally have the resources to claim complete or completed knowledge. By definition, it can't ever say, it can't say how close we've gotten to getting the whole picture. And I think uh, one of the things we'll get into here is, uh, I think a lot of popular understanding of science, both for and against it, is that science can give give you the whole picture of everything by its accumulative method. But uh, it seems empiricism itself should remain fairly agnostic about its progress in figuring out the world. It's figured it out enough, as you say, pragmatically for us to keep going, but not claiming that we have it all nailed down. And by contrast, the popular opinion that you're criticizing is what we sometimes call scientism. Right. Which, uh, which treats science as if it were a demigod producing oracles just, uh, saying this is simply the way things are, deal with it, as if inquiry did not continue and constant new perplexities were raised by new research and new angles of inquiry that come up for other reasons, sometimes non-scientific reasons. Right. I think we can say scientism is the fundamentalism of the empirical worldview, right? It has yeah, very good. Yeah. <laughs> radically right. overstepped its bounds. But I think that's a really important point to make there, Dad, because so many people, again, both for and against science, conflate science or the scientific method, let's say, of propose a hypothesis, test it, develop a theory, etc. They conflate that with scientism, which is what you said, this overweening claim to know everything and brook no further discussion. And and I think it's the probably in some ways the failure or the inability of the empiricist house to go after its scientists that have actually undermined science as a legitimate discipline or way of knowing the world. As we'll point out, this uh, uh, empiricist pushback against critical social theory uh, is often betrays a, a profound lack of self-awareness about its own historicity, the historicity of scientific reason and uh, its genesis in particularly, you know, I would say in Francis Bacon and John Locke and David Hume, these figures of the, of the uh, English Enlightenment, Scottish Enlightenment, um, that... Uh, have definite uh, roots in a particular uh, kind, kind of Reformation Christianity that was in turmoil in the 16th and 17th centuries in England. Yeah, and they're, they're just, they're not aware that 
their tradition bears these memories within itself, uh, and that it leads to some of these wide open uh, holes through which critical social theory drives a truck. All right. Well, let's get into those then with just one more point to bridge us there, which is that there is a, a very direct connection between this kind of empiricist and scientific thinking of the Enlightenment and its corresponding political expression in what we'll call classical liberalism, which is the idea of a state with consent of the governed and representative democracy, um, the human rights uh, equally distributed um, in theory, if not always in practice, but all the things that actually gave rise to the most stable and let's even say equitable societies that planet Earth has ever seen, which is not to say that they're perfect, only comparatively, they've done a lot better. They've been a lot more stable, less prone to war, more opportunities for people to participate in the marketplace as well as in the governments than ever before seen. So when the um, representative empiricists we're going to be talking about now are defending or when when they are reacting to critical theory, what they see is that tremendous political um, f- foundation <laughs> or or progress or freedom um, and all the good things that have come of it is being directly threatened by critical theory. That is what frightens them deeply. And then in order to go after the critical theory that undermines the classical liberal governmental system, they bring to bear their empiricist tools. And so what we're going to do now is look at those empiricist tools and see what they do right and why they gave rise to this very relatively stable um, political environment, but also where they have, as you said, the massive holes that can be exploited. Blind spots, yes. Let me just comment one more comment on Locke that might make the connection between empiricism and liberal political theory clear. Uh, for Locke, you know, every natural human creature has an innate right to verify claims to truth in his or her own experience. No one has to take it on authority from anybody. Uh, you have the right to say, well, perhaps this is true. Let me see how this works for me. And you have the right in your own experience to know that it's truth. And so that's kind of says a no to all kinds of dogmatism and authoritarianism in political life. And it says, uh, if you want to make a claim to truth, you have to put it there in the marketplace of ideas and let it withstand criticism and hold up to experience. So I think that's the crossover between empiricism and um, a political liberty, the liberal, a, a, a political system based upon the fundamental liberty of human beings to test and see for themselves in their own experience. Mm, very good. And that means you you need a, a government that supports the freedom of speech and expression and discovery, and uh, as well as protecting a marketplace in which those ideas can bounce off one another. Right. Right. Okay. So let's get into now the, the empiricists striking back. Uh, Dad, why don't you introduce us to the book that we're going to use as kind of exemplary of this particular perspective? Yeah, that's... Uh... That book is uh, by, let's see, James Lindsay and Helen Pluckrose. Cynical Theories, How Activist Scholarship Made Everything About Race, Gender, and Identity, and Why This Harms Everybody. And uh, this is a very interesting book because it pushes back against all the characteristic claims of contemporary identity politics. Uh, which is the the final flowering of critical social theory uh, in critical race theory, intersectional feminism, fat studies, queer studies, uh, gender studies, all that sort of stuff. And here is a, a quotation I've plucked out uh, from page 185 to introduce this text. Quote, it is therefore no surprise that many working class and poor people often feel profoundly alienated from today's left. Marxists rightly identify it, critical social theory, as having adopted very bourgeois concerns. It is profoundly ironic 
that a movement claiming to, to prosecute all sources of privilege is led by highly educated, upper-middle-class scholars and activists who are so oblivious to their status as privileged members of society. Close quote. Ouch. So the ouch, yes. So there's a real, and you know, this is something I think I mentioned in the last podcast. I have noticed for many years the utter uh, lack of uh, class analysis, the utter lack of self awareness about the privileged state of the academics uh, who pursue critical social theory and then activistically try to uh, move it into uh, direct political action. So that's Pluckrose and Lindsay's uh, parting shot across the bow. But Sarah, why don't you take us through some of the uh, specific critiques that they're making of uh, critical social theory and the liberal alternative that they want to argue? Right. Like you, I I read this book and was very appreciative of their critique of critical social theory and at the same time was utterly maddened by everything they took for granted, that it was just so (laughs) self-evidenced to them that, you know, as as I joke to you, any good Englishman can see that. Um, And uh, (laughs) that that would be your reason why you would reject critical social theory. So I've just picked out a few um, what I see as underlying assumptions of the book that are not defended. And, you know, not every book has to do everything, but given the the task of this book, the fact that these things are left undefended, I thought was a real a real lacuna in defending their case. So so just to start um, with one, is there is an assumption throughout um, the Pluckrose and Lindsay book that we have seen unmistakable progress from the Enlightenment onward. And this is sometimes called the Whiggish narrative, which is that every day in every way we're getting better and better. Yes, we have some unfortunate setbacks like World War I and World War II. But basically, everything is headed in the right direction. You see this in someone like Steven Pinker now, who's really like pushing that, you know, on every possible measure, life is better now, and people should just be grateful and stop whining all the time. And, you know, there's a certain part of me that um, shares that, because there are so many ways in which it's great to be alive now in ways it wasn't before. But I think the problem is, first of all, this is a grandiose theory of history, which um in its way is just the the twin or the mirror of Marxism with its own grandiose theory of history. And I personally, uh, having um, realized how deadly dispensationalism is to Christianity, I am really opposed to any any theories of history within its bounds, other than an eschaton at the far end of it. Um, but the, the reason why this becomes such a liability for the empiricists is because you can demonstrate all the people since the Enlightenment who have been severely harmed by so-called progress. And of course, the mass kidnapping and enslavement of Africans is one, the colonial exploitation of peoples is another, the near extermination of Native Americans, at least in North America, and doesn't matter if it was more smallpox than guns, nevertheless, those communities are tiny and severely damaged. So anytime you have an assumption of progress, you are uh, let's say, incentivized to underplay the people who have been victimized along the way. And further, if you do not have actually a doctrine of of eternal justice, then it's just bad luck for those people. We're really sorry it happened. We'll never do it again. But you can never go back and fix what happened to the people of the past who were victims of progress. You know, that, again, there's the blind spot. If advocates of um, linear progress uh, and automatic progress his history as linear automatic progress would simply read an alternative philosopher like Nietzsche. Uh, they would understand, as Martin Heidegger did in his lectures on Nietzsche, this profound insight that within a secular world, creation is always also an act of destru- destruction because we do not create ex nihilo out of nothing. Uh, from nothing comes nothing. When we create something, we are reforming, destroying, and reconstituting the materials that we find at hand. So every act of creation includes an act of destruction. 
And if you're going to talk about progress, you're also going to be talking about progress that's always also built upon acts of destruction. You mentioned colonialism and so forth, and the environment we could mention as well. I would like to also mention the the internal violence that was done in the epoch of industrialization when the feudal life of the rural villages was massively uh, transformed by the migration to the cities and the 80-hour work week and child labor and all that that did to the family structures uh, of, of traditional peoples. Yeah, those are, are great additions. And I think the massive growth of um, mental illness, at least depression, antidepressant use, um, and especially in developed societies is a really striking pushback or maybe that's not quite the a really striking commentary on maybe progress isn't everything that we thought it was. And the terrible thing is like, None of us, except, you know, a very select few are going to give up electricity or heating and air conditioning or grocery stores full of food. There's no way we will ever voluntarily step away from these things. I would say there's another aspect to this problem with this progress narrative as well, which is that it could have been that what we saw as progress was plucking all the low hanging fruit. But if you're if you're driven forward by the sense of being part of the positive movement of history. And then the progress becomes much more incremental and much harder. Then your your inspiring theory of history starts to fail you. So I've heard a lot of um, like uh, also tech commentators um, observing that the, the kind of innovation technologically seen in the past hundred years from like flush toilets and automobiles and the entire network of airports and all these kind of things up through the computer, uh, like logically, how could that ever be matched again? It solved all of the basic human problems. So the chance of having the same kind of progress in terms of improving human life on that scale, it, it, it just can't be duplicated. And then if you have an economy built on that and it slows down, and then the robots take over more and more jobs, not just working class jobs anymore, but increasingly white collar jobs. Well, then where's your progress? You know, it fails you as an ongoing gospel narrative of improvement. And culturally, I think you see this uh, in the young people and their fascination with urban apocalypse video games and so forth, which are pro- and movies and so forth, which are projecting this hopeless future for a urban civilization that is not sustainable and inevitably will collapse. So yes, the liberal champions of progress uh, increasingly sound like cheerleaders uh, on a parade that uh, few and fewer people want to march in. Right. And but then I mean, then on the flip side, the problem is then that the the critical theory approach is to say that nothing of value has happened since the Enlightenment, that everything has been pure exploitation and bloodshed. And there does seem to be a, a an incredibly stubborn failure to recognize what in fact was good. Like it seems to have to be either all good or all bad. And nuance and complexity are, are not well favored yeah. on either side. Exactly right. Uh, the that's the quotation from Pluckrose that I pulled out about academic armchair radicals, uh, with their screeds against uh, the uh, false promises of progress that they're typing out on their Apple PCs. <laughs> right, right. Denying the mathematics that gave rise to computing. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, let's move on to the next one. Is that okay? Yep. Yeah. Okay. So. Here's one. This this one, um, you know, it, it's easy for me to dismiss the progress narrative for for my own uh, dispensationalist hating reasons. This one's a little trickier for me. So um, this both empiricism and again the the political classical liberalism it gives rise to assert as a matter of I would say dogmatic principle that every individual member of the human race is equal, and that is what gave rise to things like religious toleration, your sovereign right to believe what you want and not be forced into believing it by the state. It's what gave rise to the vote. It's what gave rise to the renewed democracy of the modern era. It gave rise to the insistence on checks and balances in the system, the right to pursue um, happiness um, and your, your own life to own yourself and not be owned by anyone else. So nearly everything that everyone takes for granted as being um, the 
correct way to regard the individual members of humanity comes out of this um, and is is profoundly valued by this empiricist tradition. I mean, not like they're the only ones who ever said it, but that is that is like a core dogma of the human race and its individual members. Yeah, you know, on the continent, a philosopher like, like Leibniz would say something very similar about the dignity and quality of, of all the monads in his system. But here in Locke, I think it's important to point out that Locke was not only an empiricist philosopher. Politically, as a political philosopher, he was a Protestant Christian. And his theory of politics is very much based upon the Genesis account of Adam and Eve. You can see this in the Second Treatise of Government, this pre-political form of social of the social character of the human family uh, that pre-exists political sovereignty. And the principle of equality is there founded just like it is in Genesis, that because each human being is made in the image of God for likeness to God, every human being is valuable, precious, as God's property. That's what equality is. Equality is equality before God, the common creator. And that's why Genesis in chapter 9 uses the image of God doctrine to enforce equality against, uh, against murder. Murder is a crime against God, destruction of God's property. And you must regard all God's human creatures as equal in value to yourself, if you would even indeed dare to value yourself. That's part of Locke's uh, correlation here, uh, which he associates with what I mentioned earlier, this right to verify everything in my own experience. I have this right because I have this dignity of being image of God. Yeah, that's that's great. And I think that that already points up the uh, the deep roots of the Enlightenment beyond itself, <laughs> the preceding intellectual and religious tradition. So the the point here now is like, what could possibly be wrong with that? I mean, that that is the song that sings in every American soul of the the total equality and liberty of every individual human. Well, the problem is that as a political philosophy, it's probably the best idea we've got. But as an expression of what human life is actually like, it's terribly, terribly impoverished because that political view does not see you, as you said just now, as a member of a family, which means everybody has a mother and a father, and most people have siblings, and many will have children. And that already is, um, let's say, contaminating your sovereign selfhood with these direct filial and affectionate or not so affectionate connections that are always, always going to inform your experience of human reality. And furthermore, it doesn't take any account of your larger tribe, whether that's primarily experienced as an ethnic tribe, a racial tribe, a religious tribe, or the fact that you can be parts of all these different tribes and they overlap with each other. And then that all these tribes have their own relationships to each other. It's called history. And that history is absolutely a real thing that shapes who you are and who you think about your own individuality. I think of how many Americans invest so much energy into figuring out their genealogy and tracing back all their ancestors and, you know, going on all those Mormon sites, you know, because Mormons love genealogy because they they secretly go and baptize your ancestors into the Mormon church. But anyway, but like the reason why is because Americans who, who have, you know, been trained on individual liberty and sovereignty low these many years feel desperately disconnected and they want to belong to a history, not just American history, but wherever they came from before. So the the point is that what starts as a political philosophy of harm reduction, if it becomes the totalizing view of what it means to be human, is so desperately impoverished that I think one of the reasons identity politics has risen is because people feel so unsatisfied in their extreme atomized individuality at this point that they would rather sacrifice it to a group than go on being sovereign and so alone. Uh, Very well said, Sarah. I think that's exactly right. The irony of of a political liberalism, which begins with the uh, convic- the theological conviction of the equal value of all human creatures to their common creator, uh, you, then you sever the basic root connection of that doctrine with God the creator, uh, 
and then it starts to unravel, and it unravels progressively into the atomistic individualism that characterizes the mentality of people today, as you just described. I would just point out that there's also a reason uh, called sin for this unraveling. <laughs> sin? Sin. And I want to make it very concrete. I mentioned that Jefferson was inspired by Locke. And you can, when you read the Declaration of Independence, you're practically reading drafts of, 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 of Locke's thought on politics, especially the famous line, we hold these truths to be self-evident that all are created equal and endowed by their creator with inalienable rights, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Uh, that quotation Jefferson cribbed from Locke, but in his private notes uh, on Virginia, there's a passage in which he reflects on African chattel slavery, himself being a slave master, a plantation owner, uh, and so forth. And he writes, if there is a living God, I must be filled with terror as I look upon the institution of slavery. If there is a living God, I must be filled with terror if there, uh, as I look upon the institution of slavery. So Jefferson knew in his own conscience that the reality of American life in his time grossly contradicted the American uh, aspirations to uh, freedom and equality. So what do you do if you want to live with, with inequality? Well, you hasten the severing of those connections. First of all, the connection with God as the common creator, and then with one another uh, through these associations that you just described in order to create a mass of distracted individuals satisfied with bread and circuses. Uh, and that's how you keep the system of inequality going. Right. So, and, and I think, I mean, if I would to push the question on the empiricists, which in a way that I, I hate to do because I don't want to undermine it any further, but I, I think it just begs the question of how do they know the worth of universal humanity? Like on, on what ground other than strategically it's our best option <laughs> can they say all members of the human race are are equal like do you go to a genetic definition of humanity uh, um, then you get like you know the animal rights people pushing back and saying well, why are humans more special i mean i think it's kind of a dumb argument like obviously we're just we're categorically different from every other creature on on the planet but you could ask that question or you know if it's if it's genetic reality then the fact that abortion and you know selective um, elimination of imperfect fetuses continues unabated is uh, you know a huge um, scandal to be sitting on top of and and then you have to get into this horrible conflict between the humanity of the fetus and the the right of the mother and the reason I think we can't get anywhere with that is because a, a purely a pure equality doctrine can't cope with the fact that women bear children and men don't and that just again greatly alters their not equal not the same thing <laughs> well not not equal in the sense of not being the same right so again if uh, the the political insight of this is our best strategy therefore give women the vote yes totally on board with that but it can't adequately deal with the reality of actually different bodies, different experiences, children, you know, how, how even to think about children, that's, that was a big um, problem in the Enlightenment. So I think this is, this is the frightening, um, again, gap in this um, uh, liberal or empiricist tradition that they actually can't account for it. And then you can start to creep in this critical theory identity politics um, tradition which stops regarding, I mean, this is the terrible irony, is that instead of rehumanizing individuals, individuals become fodder for the group and its its aspirations. And then you have this loss of individuality the, in the positive sense because of the atomized individuality that has been so unsatisfying. So you see that these two are kind of like feeding off of each other. Yep. You know, there was an American philosopher about 15, 20 years ago named Daniel Dennett. I'm I'm remembering his name correctly, who published a book called Darwin's Dangerous Idea, 
And it was Darwin's idea uh, of natural selection is dangerous, he thought, just because it profoundly undermines this political tradition of liberalism's faith in the common creator who, who equally values all of his creatures and as such confers dignity upon them. And with that dogma of liberalism being undercut by Darwin's dangerous idea, Dennett argues, we have no choice but bravely to go forward with full-scale naturalism, and that means that the value of being human is the value of intelligence, and intelligence, therefore, is what makes us human. And of course, that in itself begs the question between different uh, male and female sensibilities rooted in the things you were just talking about. It, it, it obscures the difference between adults and children and their levels of intelligence, let alone elderly and senile people and so forth. And then it obscures also the natural range of difference in IQ and intellectual ability. And do we really want to found human dignity on intelligence? I don't think that's very intelligent. <laughs> Well, I know this is in George Orwell's terrifying animal farm, which is not nearly as terrifying as 1984, which is, well, then you have to get to equal but different. And how do you actually do that? Like, how do you actually say every human is equal and yet the manifest reality is that every human is different? So, you know, it's the problem of the one and the many, which is like the oldest philo philosophical problem of all time. <laughs> Just coming back again. Um, I, I do want to say, though, in favor, uh, on the side of the empiricists, because I, I suppose if you haven't, our listeners haven't already figured this out, I am more basically on their side philosophically than I am on the critical theory side. Um, but what I would say is that even with all these flaws, the um, nations and societies premised on classical liberalism are the only ones that have actually tried to fix these endemic human problems like slavery. Like, yes, Jefferson realized the contradiction and was totally wrong to sustain it. And yet it was his nation that finally figured out, we just can't do this anymore. We have to stop it. You know, at the other end of Jefferson is Lincoln. And yes, it was still not perfect then, but these societies have been self-correcting um, till recently, maybe. Let's hope they keep on going being, but they seem to have built in a sufficient awareness of, like you said, human sin, as well as the basic insights of the political importance of the sovereignty of the individual to be able to fix things. And I think the, the critical theorists' extreme over-the-top statements about the unique racist, sexist, homophobic, etc., etc., evil of the U.S. is just blindingly ignorant of history and how few societies have ever tried to fix these things. You know, we're, we are doing better. You know, I guess I would demur just a little bit. I don't think democratic regimes such as the United States are automatically open to self-correction. I think that it remains possible politically in these regimes for theological interventions to take place. And just two episodes, three episodes, the Declaration of Independence was informed by Locke's political philosophy, which is informed by the book of Genesis. Lincoln's second inaugural address, which was a retroactive interpretation of God's purposes in the war between the states as the liberation of slaves, not something that Lincoln ever purposed. His purpose was only to save the Union, and he recognized the mystery of uh, God's uh, overruling providence uh, in the outcome of the war and the emancipation of the slaves. And then I would finally mention Martin Luther King Jr., you know, who reminded um, America of the original sin of the American founding in the recognition, constitutional recognition of a slave-based, a race-based slave system in contradiction to the Declaration and reminded Americans of to, to stand up and live out the meaning of the creed that all are created equal. So I wouldn't say that uh, democracies are intrinsically self-correcting. 
I would say, in keeping society open, they are therewith open to such theological interventions, which pro provide for movements of reform. I certainly wouldn't say they're automatically self-correcting either. My point is both that they recognize the entropic drift of evil and therefore have tried to set up the the opportunity for self-correction in a way that other societies and governments have not, and that it has in fact happened. And the refusal on the part of the partisans of critical theory to recognize how much self-correction, how much and profound the desire is to not keep doing these things compared to all the rest of human history. That, that's the point, not that the in, intrinsic superiority, but comparatively. You're right. In that sense, it's an ideological cons uh, consciousness that, that is allergic to nuance and complexity and ambiguity. Uh, absolutely, I agree with that. Yeah. Again, it's all good guys or all bad guys, and that's just not, not us. <laughs> Let me, let me introduce here a quotation from a, a fellow named Michael Rechtenwald. He wrote a memoir, an academic's memoir, Springtime for Snowflakes, not a very promising title, <laughs> subtitle, Social Justice and Its Postmodern Parentage. It's actually a rather interesting little memoir about his own years as a champion of critical social theory and his disillusionment. And this is one of his concluding uh, claims, I'm quoting. The social and linguistic constructivist claims of social justice, ideologues, amount to a form of philosophical and social idealism that is enforced with moral absolutism. Once beliefs are unconstrained by the object world and people can believe anything they like with impunity, the possibility for assuming a pretense of infallibility becomes almost irresistible, especially when the requisite power is available to support such idealism. In fact, given its willy-nilly determination of truth and reality, on the basis of beliefs alone, the philosophical and social idealism necessarily becomes a dogmatic, authoritarian, anti-rational, and effectively religious, since it sanctions no pushback from the object world it regards with indifference or disdain, it necessarily encounters pushback from the object world and must double down. Because they usually contain so much nonsense, the social and philosophical idealism of the social justice creed must be established by force or the threat of force." end quote. Oof. Yes. Well, I think that points us very nicely to the, the third and final point I want to make about the empiricist slash classical liberal tradition and what critical theory exploits in it, which is the, the, the genuine optimism of empiricism that you can the knower can know the object, and the the given world around us is susceptible to our investigations and can give rise to accurate knowledge, maybe not total knowledge, maybe not complete knowledge, but nevertheless knowledge. And, you know, again, the marvelous advances in scientific discovery and technological progress and so forth all seem to be very obvious confirmations that that was right, and that using a scientific method of premised on the assumption that the knower can know the object is highly successful. And again, so far as it goes, I do not want to argue with that. I think it's great that um, I've never had a toothache, and that has a lot to do with scientific progress. Um, but the problem is, and this is something we alluded to way back in our um, Faith to the Aid of Reason episode back in our first year, which is that nevertheless, science runs up against a lot of problems. And like a good functioning democracy, it should be self-correcting. But I think there is increasing distrust of science um, on two levels. One is that um, it doesn't self-correct rapidly enough. There are um, reward and incentive systems within the scientific community itself, which means that, for instance, um, uh, experiments that actually had a very small um, 
sample size or were not properly conducted or there were factors that were not known can make it through peer review, become accepted as fact. Um, there is little incentive to go back and try again and disprove something. There is an active dislike of papers that report an experience that found nothing. Actually, that does contribute to scientific knowledge, but their reward system is not there. And you see that, I mean, that that's kind of within the scientific community. But then larger out, as I think I've mentioned on this podcast before, I think the huge rise in alternative medicine um, practices and so many people going to them is that whatever's going on in medicine is not making people feel good. People feel bad a lot of the time. Um, there are huge questions around that, around psychiatry. Um, there's all the false scientism of social sciences like uh, psychology or economics that get promoted and asserted as fact and then fail to be the case. So uh, in all of those areas, there is, I think, a, a rising discomfort with whether science can actually can do what it claims to do and whether it has actually done what it's claimed to have done. But then I think the final step in this is that if we have so mastered our environment, why do we feel so bad and why are we so unhappy? And so I think there's just this deep existential dread around science and tech that says maybe all these things we did to claw our way out of sickness and disease and being attacked by wild animals and all this kind of stuff um, has actually betrayed us on some fundamental level, and that is deeply, deeply unsettling. Yeah, sure. I think that's right. The, the, I, and this is exacerbated, isn't it, by the, the simple fact that in dynamic capitalist societies, who pays for the research? And to what extent, do, do, if you follow the money trail, to what extent do the bankrollers of scientific research get to set the agenda, form the questions, formulate the, re the research uh, directions? Uh, what do they cause to be ignored and overlooked? What kind of junk science can they create like the tobacco industry did for years in coming up with uh, uh, alternatives to the strong evidence that tobacco is cancerous and so forth and so on? Uh, you, science is a human project. It, it has our human clay feet all the way through it. And the scientific method, of course, if it were pure, right, it would not be any longer human. And anybody who's actually worked in scientific research will also, uh, after a few scotches, tell you about the ego battles that go on between <laughs> various re research regimes and who gets the grants and who doesn't get the grants and who tweaks the system and who games the system, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. You know, so yes, science is in principle and over the long term self-correcting. And that's the truth in, in, in the empiricist tradition of critical realism. If you don't respect the stone and drop it on your foot, it's still going to hurt. <laughs> right. Right. But I think it's, it's zeroing in on the discontent and the, um, the abuses of what should really be, you know, proper scientific um, methods and processes is exactly what critical theory exploits. And I think it does have the exactly. genuine insight that all science is toward a certain end. So toward what end? You know, uh, was it cui bono? Who is benefiting from this? And, you know, there's, right. I, I know, like, for example, one thing I've heard is that um, when women have heart attacks, it manifests and feels different from when men have heart attacks. So when you were always told, like, if you have a shooting pain in your left arm, you're probably having a heart attack. That's true if you're a man. It's probably, if you're a woman, you're not going to feel a shooting pain in your left arm. Folks, that is not official medical advice. I could be totally wrong about this, but you get the point. So, um, right. So there, there is, there are serious human and critique questions to be asked towards science. But again, what you see critical theory and its proponents doing is basically just, just denying the fact that the stone is heavy and will smash your toe if you drop it on your foot. And, and 
because of this desire for, you know, justice or repair or equity, simply denying reality as it's given and refusing to let the the, the given worlds press back against the theory that wants things to be a certain way. And I think that is most manifest in recent claims that there is absolutely no biological difference even between men and women, that all so-called, not just gender, but sex is totally a fictive construct. Um, right. <laughs> <laughs> that's uh, again, that's Michael Rechtenwald. Uh, let me just a brief quote from him and then on another related topic. Uh, he writes, I found the idea of the social construction of gender gratifying, and I must admit that I enjoy gender constructivism partly for its shock value. My non academic friends clung to what I saw then as hopelessly archaic reductionist explanations of gender or even sex difference. Their ideas derived from evolutionary psychology, unconscious forms of biological determinism, or simply sexist stereotypes. I had arguments with friends who had imbibed evolutionary psychology and how that, uh, and saying that gender was hardwired biologically through the evolutionary selection of traits associated with the two sexes. The horror. The horror. End quote. <laughs> And uh, and here's you know how how does the empiricist strike back, and he calls to mind Alan Suckle's delicious 1996 parody that was published oh, in right. one of these journals, transgressing the boundaries towards a transformative hermeneutics of quantum gravity. That's the title <laughs> of right, this parody, right. which purported to disprove the reality of gravity. It satirized the non-existence, disappearance, or insignificance of physical reality or the external world and critical social theory as, quote, the dogma imposed by the law in post-enlightenment uh, hegemony over Western intellectual outlook that there exists an external world whose properties are independent of any individual human being, indeed, of humanity as a whole. <laughs> <laughs> you know, yeah. so, I mean, the absurdity of that kind of uh, Berkeleyan idealism just makes us giggle, I suppose. But I would like to make the theological correlation. The same is true in theology. There are basically two kinds of theologians. Those who believe that God uh, is independently of us and indeed of creation, that God is eternally the beloved community of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and therefore already uh, in and for God a full and fulfilled uh, life of love, so that God's relationship to creation is always a generous surplus of love, not motivated in any way by need or greed. Uh, and so God is qua trinity, an objective reality independent of the creation. And then there are those, uh, they call themselves constructive theologians nowadays, who really do think God is language all the way up and all the way down. God exists in the reality of how we talk about God. And therefore, we can modify and update God according to our linguistic revisionism. We don't respect the revealed language of God uh, as truthful, but we think it's in our power and task as constructive theologians to redo the, uh, to rewire the, the language of, uh, regarding God. I think that's really insightful, and I would offer another uh, parallel in theology, which is whether or not there is any connection whatsoever between creation and redemption slash sanctification. And I think one of the reasons why I have become unlutheranly obsessed with the law as a positive aspect of human life is because I realize in a complete biblical and Trinitarian faith, the redemption and restoration is of the creation and not of anything else. And it's not an alternative exactly. to the creation. And so then what what the good is, is in fact creation when it has been re redeemed from sin, which means that there is a givenness to reality, to createdness, to the things, to the gravity and the stone falling on you that are are 
built into the goodness that God has created for us. And you cannot, to me, I guess the, the Torah, the positive sense of the law is that positive engagement with creation. Because the creation is subject to sin, things can go badly wrong from the, the natural evil of, you know, because of gravity, if you fall from a great enough height, it will kill you to the moral evil of the way you can exploit the vulnerabilities of others. But nevertheless, the, the direction is toward it's it yeah just to state the point again what is redeemed is the creation we're not trying to undo destroy rewire reconfigure the whole creation but restore and redeem what is intrinsically good you know i was I had a debate with some of my friends at the college here um, who would generally be in this school of thoughts social uh, critical theory social critical social theory and uh at the end of an, a semester of debates with them, I said, you know, the left has never learned the real lessons of Marxism, why Marxism, what Marxism had right and what where Marxism went wrong. And uh, they ferociously deny that, oh, yes, we have reckoned with the problems of Marxism. But I think from the perspective of critical social theory, it goes like this. Belief in the working class was the failure of classical Marxism. So we have to move on to these bourgeois concerns regarding gender and 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 queer and fat and so forth and and so on. More seriously, race. I I, I don't I wouldn't want to diminish the seriousness of the question of race at all. Uh, but in so they jettison the truly insightful thing I think in the Marxist tradition class analysis, and on the other hand, they don't learn the lesson from Marxism's Prometheanism, uh, the belief that human nature is infinitely malleable, and that we can drive the people to happiness with an iron fist. I see the same authoritarian and coercive. Uh, uh, illusions surrounding this so-called new left. Uh, it's no different in that way from uh, the Lyshenkoism and so forth of the Soviet Union. Yeah. I, I, you know, I have to say, I, I hear in it a fundamental hatred of humanity. Like, how, how dare humanity exist? How dare humanity be full of all these people who have done wrong and oppressed each other? How dare humanity like what it likes and dislike what it dislikes and is motivated by these things and not by that things? It's just, I think it's a very powerful revulsion against humanity itself that is masking itself in the, the guise of righteousness and compassion and is, in fact, anything but because it, it just fundamentally hates the object that it's claiming to be redeeming. It's a, it's a, it, it is a secular politics of purity whose logical conclusion will be the purgation of their human race. Yeah. But then, but then well, wait a minute, though. We still have to turn back. This was an episode on the empiricist tradition and its blind spots and so forth and so on. So we finally have to say that the empiricist tradition is just way too complacent and ignorant of its own historicity. And if it wants to uh, have a future, it's going to have to retrace those steps and how it got here and reclaim some of the resources that it has so willy-nilly abandoned in the name of Darwin's dangerous idea. Absolutely. And in fact, the term I've come up with for this is intellectual creationism. When I hear empiricist critics of critical social theory they just keep appealing to the enlightenment, the enlightenment, the enlightenment, enlightenment values, as if all good things started in the enlightenment and there was, they are just ignorant, first of all, that there's more than one enlightenment and that critical social theory can also trace itself back there, but also that there was an enormous stream of intellectual and religious and cultural background that led up to the things that they value in the enlightenment now. And as I think you have shown us again and again in this episode, Dad, are part and parcel of it. They are intrinsically bound up with the things that are valued by the empiricists. So in the very unlikely event that any such secular non-religious empiricist ever should listen to this 
this episode, I would just like to say, please join hands with us, learn your own history, and make allies of the religious who are not all fundamentalists. This is another thing that drives me nuts about these uh, empiricist critics is that they they only know fundamentalism. I don't know why it gets so much airtime, because most most religious believers are not fundamentalistic. But anyway, we have a a very long intellectual tradition also with lots of resources we could help you with. And in fact, in our next episode, if you keep listening to that one, we will help you sorting those things out. Well, just one final ironic comment on that, Sarah, is that modern Christian fundamentalists who think that they're opposed to science are in fact another version of empiricist foundationalism. for whom either the miracle of an inerrant Bible or the miracle of the experience of the new birth, there are various versions of this evangelical fundamentalism, which is your uh, indubitable foundation of knowledge, the dictated Bible that falls from heaven intact, or the spiritual experience of being born again, two different versions of Enlightenment foundationalism, which makes them fundamentalist. That's God said it, I believe it, end of discussion, right? That settles it. And that's what fundamentalism basically is. And so in their fundamentalism that these secular uh, uh, empiricists are, are attacking, they are actually the mere image of the scientism of the uh, the scientism, the fundamentalist scientism of that version of the Enlightenment. So I would say the religious need to reclaim our intellectual heritage and the uh, scientific need to reclaim their historical and religious heritage. And that is the the powerhouse combo that can um, hopefully turn the tide of the, the rising totalitarian impulses that we're seeing. In our next episode, we're going to talk about what Luther called the new language of the spirit and how Christian theology can steer a course between the skilla of rationalism and the charybdis of empiricism away into a better future. All right. Well, there you go, folks. He stole my line. <laughs> listening to the Queen of the Sciences podcast. For show notes and more, visit our website, queenofthesciences.com. To find out more about what we do, visit sarahhenlickywilson.com and paulhenlicky.com. Finally, please leave us a review on iTunes and tell a friend about the show. Music